This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Hello, I'm Hogue Levins, and today our guest is Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who's a vice provost of the University of Pennsylvania. And formerly, uh, he was an advisor to the White House, and he is one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act. Dr. Emanuel, thanks for being with us. It's a great pleasure. And today we're here to talk about your brand new book. Correct. And let me start at the beginning, the very cover. And, and the title of this is Reinventing American Healthcare. And the subtitle is How the Affordable Care Act Will Improve Our Terribly Complex, Blatantly Unjust, Outrageously Expensive, Grossly Inefficient, Error-Prone System. And my question is, we were at all concerned that that, that subtitle is somewhat confrontational. Uh, it's somewhat absolute. Were you concerned at all that it might turn off some of the readers that you would otherwise be able to influence? Well, I do think that the description there, the complexity, the inefficiency, the expensive, error-prone system are well accepted. We did, before the Affordable Care Act, have that kind of system uh, that was terribly expensive and inefficient, uh, had a lot of people uninsured. Uh, I do think that the Affordable Care Act is going to make a big dent in each one of those, uh, and I make that argument uh, in the book. Although I should say the book is not just an argument about the Affordable Care Act. It's sort of tries to educate people about the healthcare system, how various parties get paid, how insurance came about in the United States, all the efforts over hundreds of a uh, hundred years of trying to reform it, how the Affordable Care Act got passed, what's in the Affordable Care Act, and then I do make predictions about the future. So it's not just about the ACA. Okay. And in the book, you take the uh, Congressional Budget Office to task. <laughs> you talk about the tyranny of the CBO, and you say that although the Congressional Budget Office scores are objective and nonpartisan, they are frequently wrong. And you talk about the bias and how it can create real harm by placing roadblocks for important and worthy legislation. And you cite instances of, from three decades of wrong uh, CBO estimates. So my question is, how did the CBO scoring impede the ACA? Uh, and if there had not been CBA scoring, how would the ACA be different? So first of all, uh, I also say that we need an umpire. I, I, I recognize that the role the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, plays is absolutely essential. You have to have someone who's going to objectively assess a bill. But I also indicate, as you point out, that they have an institutional bias. They're always willing to, say, discount savings and uh, assess higher costs than uh, you might because if they're wrong, things don't cost as much uh, or they save uh, more than they anticipated, they think there's no harm done to the system. And part of what I wanted to point out is there is harm done to the system because good ideas that might have saved they say, no, it's really not going to save or it's only going to save a little or it might even cost. Uh, they may be wrong on that and inhibit a lot of good ideas from coming forward. And I do cite the uh, over three decades uh, from the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s cases of major healthcare legislation where they simply have underestimated the savings uh, that could be achieved. The uh, uh, Part D, the uh, Medicare drug benefit, is an excellent example. They are, their cost estimate was 40% too high. That 
makes a very big difference in setting policy, especially when every uh, politician is constantly asking, how does it score, which means does it save money? And there are a lot of programs that we wanted to put in to uh, the Affordable Care Act that didn't score or didn't score as much uh, as the CBO would say. And that means that, you know, when you're bargaining, you don't uh, retain them as, uh, uh, for the bargain because, you know, it's not that expendable or you can't get as much savings from them. And then there are, you know, I think I point out in the book, lots of things where there's no precedent. So they just guess. Um, and I'm not, again, I didn't want to fault them. I did want to just indicate how it creates a certain kind of mindset. Uh, everyone thinks they have this model which really does predict the future. Well, they have a model. It doesn't predict the future terribly well. And uh, to constantly be trying to guess what they're going to score it, uh, I think, uh, inhibits a lot more creative policy thinking than we might otherwise get. Of the elements uh, for the potential elements for the ACA that didn't score, uh, you know, which one was the most important one you thought should be in and well, you regret it wasn't. <laughs> in general, and this is separate from scoring, in general, the thing I'm most frustrated by is that we didn't have more payment reform in the bill. Uh, because I do think that's a very important element to get us off the fee-for-service system, which encourages m using more services and of particular types that are uh, highly paid uh, to a system that doesn't encourage people just using services, but actually keeping patients healthy, uh, keeping them out of the hospital. Um, I think that's a very important switch. And again, this is a case where I think the CBO scoring was less favorable to those changes. The other thing I would say is that the CBO scoring t tends to evaluate each individual change as opposed to putting them all together. And uh, for, I think, many changes, a complete change uh, that involves, you know, uh, IT, uh, disease management, uh, identifying high-risk people, uh, putting in place interventions. Uh, those haven't been regularly and rigorously tested, and so the CBO doesn't really uh, have an idea about or, or doesn't think it can actually estimate with reliability savings. But a lot of places have seen those changes give you a sort of directional savings and a, uh, a pretty good savings. And, um, but, you know, it doesn't meet CBO standards for including in their model. Um, and I think that kind of sort of experimentation doesn't get highly ranked. Uh, nonetheless, I recognize the important role of the CBO. I don't, we can't work without it in Washington, but I do think we all, all we and including the CBO, ought to recognize the biases and flaws and try to figure out ways to counteract them. Okay. In your, in your frequent TV appearances and your interviews in other media, at least the ones I've watched and the ones I've read, uh, over the last couple of years, you've been, uh, you've been perceived to be a staunch supporter of the Obama administration, obviously, uh, and the ACA. Parts of this book, which are pretty critical, seem uh, to have a totally different tone. Is this a dramatic departure for you to be so critical of, of internal White House management procedures now as opposed to uh, the stance you took publicly in the past? Well, I think a lot of people have tried to pigeonhole me. Uh, in point of fact, when the uh, exchange went bad, I had a pretty detailed critique in the New York Times, pretty public, about what I think they needed to do to solve the problem, uh, including appoint a CEO. They haven't done that. Uh, you know, and so I do think I've tried to be balanced in uh, what has gone wrong and what has gone right. 
you know, I've actually been pretty out in the open. I think it gets drowned out by the fact that I do think in general this, the ACA has been a big step in the right direction and is catalyzing positive change. But there are plenty of things, uh, especially around the execution, that I think could have gone uh, better. I, I am disappointed we still don't have menu labeling uh, regulations. I have been disappointed about uh, PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, not being aggressive enough. And I think I've been actually pretty upfront about that. But, you know, not everyone notices all the nuances of an academic. Uh, and uh, I think that's, uh, you know, I am generally quite positive. I think the bill did uh, address many of the problems we had in the system. And I've often said it's not a perfect bill. In a democracy, you can't expect a perfect A-plus bill. Um, you're going to get compromises, and uh, that policymakers would prefer not to be there, but politics dictates that they are. You mentioned uh, the CEO issue, and in the part of the book that's a post-mortem inside the White House of what went wrong managerially, um, it's sort of inside baseball, but you can, can explain a little bit about why a different kind of CEO might have made a difference in the way that healthcare.gov uh, went bad? So um, I think you need to view the exchanges and the federal exchanges as a e-commerce site. We should not view it as a program in the government like the VA benefits. It is uh, much more analogous to, say, Amazon or other uh, e-commerce sites. And in that regard, it needs to be run like an e-commerce site, not like a government program issuing regulations. Um, and that typically will require a CEO. It'll require a, a highly talented staff. It'll require constant tweaking of the exchanges, the rules, how you want to uh, um, uh, show people what their options are and educate them. And I've been pretty upfront about that. I was upfront about that uh, beginning in 2010, that I thought this was necessary for proper execution. Um, and I think if you look at the successful state exchanges like Connecticut, like California, they've had that structure where they've had someone uh, typically with insurance uh, uh, company experience or running an exchange, uh, being able to collect the right team. And basically every morning, uh, get up thinking about how are we going to make this better? How are we going to work with our suppliers, the insurance companies? How are we going to work with our customers to make sure they're having the right experience or that we can adjust what we're doing to make it better for them? I think that's the proper way to run this thing. Again, on the idea that this is more an e-commerce site than, the, than this is a government program. Back then, did anyone actually say to Nancy Ann DeParla, uh, we should have a CEO of this yes. type? Yes. And, and why did she elect to go? Well, first of all, I don't think it was her decision. Uh, I think this was a, a decision inside uh, the White House, um, and I can't tell you why they uh, didn't go that route. I mean, I have, as I mentioned in the book, there was, you know, political considerations. Uh, they had uh, the administration, uh, we had been criticized about having too many czars of this and czars of that, and they were worried about uh, additional criticism. But I think as has become clear over time, uh, Getting the exchanges right was critical politically, and even if you took short-term uh, criticism for appointing a CEO and creating this structure that would run it like a business, uh, I think in the long term it was clearly uh, not optimal uh, uh, to fail to do that. In the book, uh, on that point, uh, you write, though, in, in a very positive way, there is no reason to despair or give up on health care reform itself. As many high technologies have shown, it is possible to bounce back from flawed website rollouts. 
But this is only possible if relentless focus on execution becomes a reality. So the question is today, has the White House changed and is it relentlessly executing this correctly? Well, uh, clearly when they appointed uh, Jeff Zients to, uh, uh, I guess the word, the correct word is rescue the uh, exchange in websites. Uh, he was uh, focused. Uh, the recent Steve Brill article does show that they really worked 24-7. They got a really top-flight team. Uh, and I think that lesson uh, should not be lost on them, that that's really what you need uh, when you launch. And, you know, let's remember, uh, Twitter was not a flawless launch. Uh, uh, lots of other companies have had uh, a problems with launching their website that have come back to be very successful. Um, and I certainly hope that the uh, White House is paying attention to that. Okay. Back to a subject you mentioned, payment reform. And in the book, you have a, a section on that. And the whole issue of switching from a, you know, a four-fee payment service to a more episodic one, uh, I've gone to any number of seminars and conferences. This is a constant subject subject. But I haven't been to any where anyone actually presents a plan to achieve that. And there seems to be a great deal of confusion, uh, inertia. Uh, no one knows what to do. How do you take a $4 billion a year urban health care network and completely unbuild its revenue systems at the same time you build something else that's not exactly defined? How well, are we first of all, I do think in, uh, I believe it's chapter 12 of my book, I do talk about health care, health reform 2.0, and I do have a chapter about, or a section there about uh, getting more uh, alternative payment models to fee-for-service, and I do have a very uh, uh, plan, actually. <laughs> so I do think that there is a plan. Uh, I would suggest that there are three or four steps that would be very important to this. Uh, and as you point out, you're not going to get, uh, for example, the University of Pennsylvania overnight to be able to go from fee-for-service to alternative payment models. But the approach, therefore, is, well, let's give it a guide path, but all agree that at the end of some predefined time period, I say a decade, so 2022 is my time point. By 2022, 75 or 80% pick a number is off fee-for-service, and that gives everyone sufficient planning time and ability to shift. Then you pick particular areas where you think you can move off the fee-for-service system quickly and allow the hospitals and health systems to experiment. So as I say in the book, step one is we have had a recent Medicare experience called the ACE demonstration, uh, the acute care episodes, which pays bundled payment for cardiac procedures and orthopedic procedures, stents, cardiac uh, uh, um, uh, catheterizations, cabbages, coronary bypasses, uh, uh, pacemaker placement, hips and knees, you give the uh, uh, institutions and surgeons a bundle payment. That has shown to save some money and improve quality of care. That's a place to start, very defined. I, as I point out in the book, the bundle used by Medicare in the demonstration wasn't perfect, and we'd like to try an experiment to expand it, to include shared decision-making at the start, so every patient undergoing these procedures is given an information sheet or a video uh, to see whether they want in or out, and then it includes rehabilitation after the procedure as well as a guarantee for up to six months that anything that goes wrong, say with the hip replacement, is going to be covered free of charge. That 
you fa can phase in pretty quickly because we have evidence it works. Then you take another area like cancer, and I think cancer is a very good area because we have a lot of guidelines, we have a lot of agreement on how patients should be treated, and begin to identify very high volume, high cost cancers that can be bundled. And this, I think, provides you a, a, a pathway forward to move off the fee-for-service system into a system where people are not paid to do more, but to do higher quality care efficiently. And that, I think, is a plan that can take us to uh, 2022 and shifting a lot of payments off uh, the fee-for-service system. And I think that's a great plan in theory. And I guess the question is, within the ACA, uh, how do you actually get hospital systems to begin to do this? Uh, uh, well, see, well first, of all, first of all, the ACA, one of the, I do think one of the uh, smart uh, provisions we put in was the Secretary of Health and Human Services has the authority, without getting additional legislation, to nationalize, to take a, a uh, experiment, a demonstration project that has shown to either save money and or improve quality and nationalize it across Medicare. She doesn't need to go to the hospital. She can say, all right, in two years, we're going to start paying this way and give them two years to figure out how they're going to do it. Let's remember, we have a lot of really smart people running these health systems, including the University of Pennsylvania. You tell them what the rules are, they will adapt to those rules. I have no doubt about it. And they just want those rules. I mean, one of the things that's true as I go around the country is, they feel like uh, a lot of doctors and health systems feel like they're caught in two boats at the same time, which is they're paid fee-for-service and everyone is telling them, oh, you've got to improve the quality of your care, you've got to become more efficient, and yet they're not being paid to do those things. And they would, I think, in general, prefer to be paid to do that so they wouldn't lose money while trying to improve the quality of their system. Okay. And in the payment section, you also get into graduate medical education, $10 billion for Medicare every year in uh, I can't remember whether the, your word was useless, but essentially uh, it's not being tracked or assessed, assessed well how it's being used. Right. You indicate that the students coming out are simply not prepared for modern-day, digitally-based, team-oriented care. Right. Uh, what's the answer to that? How do you change that? You say it must be changed. What are the changes do you think that should well, be Well, again, made? in the book, I, I, I think we make pretty clear uh, during medical school, first we ought to shorten medical school. Uh, second, we ought to have some focus on training people in team-based care, training people in digital medicine, as you point out. How do you work with mo uh, uh, various wireless monitors at home or wireless compliance devices at home? Uh, that People need to be trained for that. We also need to train them in the outpatient setting. Right now, if you're uh, in medical school and intern and resident, the vast majority of your time, 90 per plus percent of your time, is spent treating patients in a hospital. Whereas in the new system, much less time, much fewer patients are going to be in the hospital. Doctors are going to spend much less time treating patients in the hospital, and yet that's how we train them. So we need to emphasize, you now have to provide half the training outside of a hospital. That's complicated. I recognize it. And again, this isn't a change that can happen overnight, but you have to give deadlines. Otherwise, no one's going to have an incentive to change their system. And I think those kind of changes, in addition, I think I mentioned in the book uh, that we need to train uh, doctors much more in management. Change management. How do you actually manage change? Negotiations, uh, because they're constantly negotiating, whether with their colleagues or their patients or payers. Uh, we need to train them in strategic planning. How to use data. How to implement 
changes. So I think uh, there's a lot uh, uh, that needs to be done to change the medical education we've had. I mean, I, one of the ironies is medical education really took the structure it has today 100 years ago with the Flexner Report. Medical system has changed a lot. The kinds of treatments we're giving to patients have changed a lot. You would think medical education should change more than it has. Okay. Uh, one of the in, in your book, you go through various trends as you look forward and bravely make predictions <laughs> about what's going to happen. And you say this is a, a brave, you know, brave task. I recognize the stupidity <laughs> of making tradition, uh, predictions, mostly because Phil Tetlock is a professor here at the Wharton School uh, and at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's written a whole book about how dangerous it is for experts to make opinion, uh, make predictions. So I recognize it's it's difficult, but I also recognize it's essential. All of us are making predictions about the future, whether you're running a hospital, whether you're a doctor or an investor, uh, you're making predictions about how the future is going to evolve. And I thought, well, I've got a lot of experience, knowledge, I'll make some predictions. And again, I've learned from Phil Tetlock that uh, you got to be very specific. What exactly quantitatively is a prediction, if there's a quantitative prediction, and give a specific date. So I try to be as rigorous as possible, um, and I know that I might be uh, uh, held up to uh, laughter and uh, uh, insult if uh, my predictions turn out to be wrong. One of those predictions is that in the next six years, uh, at least 1,000 hospitals across the country will close. And within that, you, you suggest that the community, either that, that part of the community that works at those hospitals or the patients who use those hospitals, that they should not fight this. Can you explain that more? Why, why would we want to see a thousand hospitals close and just sort of just let it happen? Uh, first of all, uh, the hospital occupancy rate uh, in the United States is now under 70 percent. That means uh, there are lots of beds that are not being occupied. Uh, and a lot of the ho there are a number of hospitals under 50%, uh, and they are not necessarily, uh, uh, shouldn't necessarily be there. Take Vermont. Uh, for a population of 400,000 people, they have 11 hospitals. That's just unnecessary. Second, uh, a lot of these hospitals, uh, as I mentioned, we are, we're, one of the reasons we're going to seek hospitals close is because a lot of care that hitherto had been delivered in hospitals can be more effectively and uh, at less cost delivered at home or in other settings. There's no reason to go into a hospital, for example, for a colonoscopy. Uh, you can do it in an outpatient setting at a cheaper uh, rate and with the same kind of quality. Many patients who we used to admit to the hospital, for example, for exacerbations of, uh, of uh, emphysema or congestive heart failure can be treated just as well at home. So we'll see that shift. Well, if you treat people at home, the nurses, as I think I make clear in the book, who were once working the halls are now going to be visiting patients at home. They're not going to be unemployed. If the main worry about closing a hospital is employment, you know, will lose important high-paying jobs, uh, we're going to shift those jobs to other services in the healthcare industry. Well, I'm a uh, cost control hawk, you might say, when it comes to healthcare. I am also a realist. We are not taking a system that now is spending $2.9 trillion on healthcare and going to reduce that to $2.6 trillion. The only question is, how fast or slow does it go up from $2.9 trillion to $3.2, $3.3 trillion? And to the extent that it's on the upward slope, that means more people are going to be employed in the healthcare system, more services are going to be delivered, and therefore I think when we close hospitals, we shouldn't look as if all of that's going away. It's going to be redeployed in other areas. 
people who were coming into this hospital aren't suddenly not going to need health care services. They're going to need them in a different way, in different facilities, uh, or maybe at home. And that's going to be, I think, if you're worried about the employment part, uh, uh, going to employ plenty of people and I think, uh, again, is going to be better for patients. And we should remember the main goal of a healthcare system is not employment. The main goal of a healthcare system is keeping the population healthy. Okay, and one, uh, uh, one of the last questions, we're talking about updating the law. And in, in the book, you're talking about um, the ACA is an enormous thing. It'll, it'll ha- make significant changes, uh, even, even as it will need further modifications and revisions. And, and uh, just the other day, um, we had Andrew Dreyfus yeah. from Massachusetts come, uh, and he and, and others talked about how in Massachusetts, since the law was passed in 2006, it's been significantly amended six different times, and they anticipate an ongoing endless amendments because of corrections, because of unintended consequences, et cetera. The ACA is, is one, it never made it through conference. Now it's like a non-dynamic law. What do you see happening as this non-changeable law pushes forward and can't be corrected? Is that sufficient to cripple the ACA, or where is that going to go? Uh, It seems in the poison atmosphere of Washington, it's unlikely that it will be amended. Is that fair? So uh, I think think what Andrew Dreyfus says is right. Healthcare, I think the opening line of my disclaimer is healthcare is dynamic, and we similarly need policies and laws and regulations relative to healthcare to be dynamic and to respond as the system evolves, uh, as flaws are found. Um, And ironically, if you talk to people in Washington who, when they're not engaged in the partisan battle, uh, there's a lot of agreement about the kinds of changes they want to be put into place, but we're locked into this, uh, what seems to be an endless uh, uh, battle over the soul of the ACA. Um, I actually believe that's unfortunate. I think almost everyone, no matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, believes it's unfortunate. Um, And I think that we're probably going to fight two more elections on the ACA, the 2014 election and maybe the 2016 presidential election. And then hopefully, uh, my hope is that we'll be able to get, uh, all right, it's the law of the land. Uh, Let's uh, deal with uh, the problems and let's see if we can improve things. Uh, I will say my uh, best hope on that regard is before I went on, to, on TV last night with Bill O'Reilly, uh, he said to me, look, I don't want to talk about the ACA. It is the law of the land. It's coming into being. I want to talk about responses to it and, for, and for example, how doctors are responding or not responding and don't want to participate in the ACA. And I uh, took that as, uh, wow, that's uh, revealing. And, you know, I wish he would say it on the air uh, because that I think would change the discussion and allow us to move forward. But I can tell you I've talked to a number of staffers of Republican senators and congressmen, and they recognize uh, and actually have a lot of agreement with the things uh, uh, I want to propose. I think, you know, when I talk to conservative uh, health policy experts, um, there's a lot of overlap, 60, 70 percent overlap between my views and their views. And I think we could actually make a lot of progress if we put the ideology behind us and try to improve the health care system. uh, in this country. And, you know, I, again, I, I was involved in passage in enacting the ACA and uh, helping to design various provisions. Um, I recognize it's flawed. It's not a perfect bill. As I said before, it's, it's not an A bill. You're not going to get perfection in a democracy. And it needs to be constantly, healthcare system needs to be constantly tweaked. The idea that we do it once and for all, that is just false. 
And looking down the same road, uh, in the book you talk about how uh, the ACA has been a great achievement for President Obama. At the same time, it has wounded him politically really badly. And you also say that you think down the road that history will actually look back at him and smile. Tell us how and why. I, not, not many people are, are uh, students of American history, but uh, let's take a pause and a little diversion to answer your question. Harry Truman, when he was actually president, was not very popular. Some people don't, uh, don't fully remember, but the 1948, uh, in that year, he was more or less written off. Everyone was sure he was not going to be reelected. Uh, even the Chicago Tribune on election day published, you know, Dewey defeats Truman. Uh, so, Here's a guy who is not very popular, and a lot of the things he did, integrate the army, uh, drop the bombs on Hiroshima, uh, the Marshall Plan, uh, NATO, uh, uh, the Cold War, were at the time, you know, he wasn't popular for integrating the army. The Marshall Plan barely passed the Senate. He, he had to call it the Marshall Plan instead of the Truman Plan to get it to pass. Uh, very, you know, not very popular president. Now we lionize Harry Truman, and we think he's like the greatest, you know, he's a near-great president behind uh, uh, Washington, Lincoln, and Ro uh, Franklin Roosevelt. He stands with people like Teddy Roosevelt uh, and others as a near-great president. Well, I think that the Affordable Care Act is going to play the same way. Once it plays out, once it begins to transform the system, if in fact, you know, even half my predictions are true. It gets healthcare inflation down to GDP. Uh, it transforms the delivery, so we're really taking care of the chronically ill and the mentally ill. Um, you will see people say, wow, this really did make a very positive move in the system. It was a very important change. It's going to take a decade to see those effects, I believe, again, because we're dealing with such a big uh, a part of the economy, such a complex part of the economy. Uh, I would also say, I think I say this very clearly in the book, the wounds that politically have been suffered because of the ACA are a result of bad communications about the ACA, what's in it, what it means for the average person, and the bad implementation of the exchanges, neither of which were inherent or necessary. Both were, in, uh, as I say in the book, somewhat self-inflicted. We didn't, and the Obama administration didn't do uh, a particularly stand-up job, either of communicating around it uh, or uh, executing. And I think uh, uh, there's nothing inherent or necessary in the ACA being viewed as negatively as it is today. It could have been different. A perfect ending. Dr. Emanuel, thanks for being with us, and good luck with your book. Thank you very much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.